repairing the damage that the body does to itself throughout life at the molecular and cellular level is actually easier than slowing down the rate at which the body creates that damage in the first place. What would you do if you could live forever, or even another 10, 20, 30 years? Those questions may be worth pondering if we consider aging as a disease that can be cured by medical science. Welcome again to Imagine Human, where we share inspiring visions for the future of humanity. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Aubrey de Grey, the founder of Sense Research Organization, a nonprofit dedicated to curing aging. Dr. de Grey discusses how he and his team have identified seven mechanisms of accumulated damage within the body that they believe are at the root of most chronic diseases, and ultimately, aging. He shares the logic behind his approach, opposition he overcame from the wider academic community, and the progress of the organization's research thus far. So we're glad to have you here, Aubrey. Thank you. To tell us a little bit more about your research foundation, as well as the great work that you're doing to combat aging. Sure, I'm delighted to. Yeah, so we're sitting here in the headquarters of Sense Research Foundation in Mountain View, California. This is the epicenter of the emerging rejuvenation biotechnology industry. That's a nice pompous way, I like to say. So basically, yeah, we're, we're interested, obviously, in doing medical research to develop new therapies that will bring aging under better control, will keep people more functional, both mentally and physically, in old age. And we believe that there is pretty much no limit to the extent to which that can be done. In other words, that in due course, it will be possible to keep people, both mentally and physically, in a state comparable to young adulthood, however long ago they were born. That's what we're trying to achieve. The essence of how we're trying to achieve it is based on some ideas that I first put forward nearly 20 years ago now, which essentially revolve around the realization that repairing the damage that the body does to itself throughout life at the molecular and cellular level is actually easier than slowing down the rate at which the body creates that damage in the first place. This was originally very counterintuitive, and it took me quite a while to persuade most of my colleagues that this was actually something that made sense, but it's very mainstream now. It's been very much taken on board, and it's considered pretty orthodox. So a lot of people are following it, and of course what's happening as a result is that progress is becoming faster because of greater interest from people with deep pockets. But when we started out, that wasn't so at all. And the requirement was to bring money in philanthropically, really, because it had to be, it couldn't be from industry because there was no real value proposition yet. There was no kind of joining of the dots to profitability. And it also couldn't really be from academia because, as I'm sure both of you are well aware, academia also has its own short-termism problems, which are different from industry, but still just as severe. So yes, we decided that the right thing to do is to set up a charity. So Sense Research Foundation is a 501c3, a public charity, and that means that anyone who wants to give us money gets a tax benefit. And I'm delighted to say that quite a few people have given us money over the years. We get you know, small donations from a large number of grassroots supporters. We also have a few very wealthy donors who support us to a much higher level. 
It's not enough by any means. Our total budget and annually has been pretty stagnant over the past several years around the $5 million level, which is, you know, enough for us to have been able to do some work that we're very proud of, but we could definitely have done more if we had had more. However, as I mentioned, this is gradually changing, not exactly in terms of the foundation itself, but in terms of the broader movement and the development of these medicines. Because the way that we position ourselves, these days anyway, is as the kind of engine room of the industry. We try to develop things to a sufficient level of proof of concept that investors will actually see a way to join the dots or the way to profitability. And that's now happening. A number of our projects have got to the point where we were able to spin them out into startup companies. We've done that five times so far. There's another one just coming. And in each case, the company has been able to get investment and done pretty well. In fact, so far, the success has been very much greater than what we were ever able to achieve philanthropically, which is kind of a surprise. Now, of course, we are still rather restricted to the more, if you like, the more visionary end of the investor spectrum in that regard, because certainly these are early stage things. We spend them out of early stages we possibly can. But still, it's very much happening thing. Gotcha. Thank you so much. I'm curious. So it, it sounds like it's been a long journey, right? Since the inception, the very, very beginning when you mentioned, you know, 20 years ago when you first came out with, with your book, it was hard to get people on board. What was the tipping point for you? Was there kind of, when did things start kind of clicking? Well, I wouldn't say that there was a single tipping point. You see, the thing about doing this comprehensive damage repair is that kind of by definition, it's a divide and conquer strategy, which means that if some kind of, you know, if some scientist is inherently sceptical about it, then even if you make a bit of progress in one area, they're always going to say, oh, well, that was the easy one, you know. Mm -hmm. Conversely, if people are optimistic in the first place, then they'll kind of carry on getting more optimistic and so on. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, when I started out in, well, I actually had the kind of big eureka moment in the year 2000, I started out talking to people who I thought would be open-minded, but who were also very knowledgeable, and it worked out pretty well. I, you know, tried to get them to demolish the idea, and they were unable to do that. So that gave me encouragement. You know, just incrementally after that, as more progress was made, not, not just by us, of course, because way back then we had no money at all, and we certainly would not be able to do our own research. You know, incrementally, we made more and more progress and people became more and more interested in the whole credibility of the whole idea became greater and greater. So the progress that we were making was initially such an early stage that we couldn't even publish. And that comes back to what I was saying about the short termism in academia. The reason we were able to work on these really difficult problems was because we could work on them for several years without any publications at all. Uh, because we were not being supported by, you know, peer review. And eventually it did actually start to pay off. We started publishing quite significant breakthroughs. I think the first one that I would really point to was back in 2012. And over the years, we've got more and more of our projects to that point. And that's really the stage when it becomes possible to start talking to investors. Of course, not only investors, also academics. Some of the projects we've been working on are in areas that the academic specialists in the area had just basically given up on because they just thought they were never going to be possible. And we've kind of, you know, unbroken that logjam, which is nice. But yeah, so over the past, I'm going to say no more than three years, there's been this explosion of interest from investors. And the result is now there are half a dozen venture funds that are specific for this kind of area. There are lots of people coming in, starting new companies independently of us, but closely aligned with us. 
in addition to the ones that we're spinning out. So yeah, there's been a, six, a succession of tipping points, I would say. In, in terms of this breakthrough, can you speak a little bit more about that and specifically which of your seven you know, categories that you relate to aging does this one fall under? Sure, yeah. So, um, well, two of us spin out in the area of molecular garbage inside the cells. So waste products that are created as byproducts of normal metabolic processes and that for whatever reason the cell does not have the capacity, the ability to break down or to excrete. So, of course, that means that the waste product accumulates and eventually there is too much and the cell starts to have impaired function. That turns out to be the main driver of some of the most important aspects of aging, such as atherosclerosis, which is, of course, the number one killer in the Western world, and also macular degeneration, the number one cause of blindness in the elderly. So in both cases, we were able to apply successfully the approach that I first put forward back in 1999, just before I came up with the kind of grand scheme of sense, which was to identify other species that are able to break down these waste products. In general, the other species will be bacteria. So, of course, the purpose of breaking those waste products down is that the selected function is not in order to live long, but rather in order to extract energy or as a carbon source or an oxygen source or whatever. But that's fine. It doesn't matter why the gene exists. If the gene exists to create an enzyme that has this function, then in principle, we could put that gene into human cells and we would thereby augment the catabolic capacity of the cells. And the toxic thing that eventually causes these problems in old age would no longer accumulate, and therefore we wouldn't get those problems. Now, of course, it's a lot harder than that in, in, in reality, not least because the typical location of these waste products in human cells is the lysosome, and bacteria don't even have lysosomes, and there's a whole bunch of tinkering that has to be done in order to make such genes actually work in a human context. But we were successful with that tinkering in both the cases I've just mentioned, atherosclerosis and macular degeneration. And both of those projects were duly handed over to startup companies to take forward. And both such companies have been able to attract plenty of investment. So, you know, that's a good example of how we got this going. We could take a step back. Would you be able to kind of give listeners an overview of the seven strategies and yeah. also, you know, why do you think is super important for us to tackle aging and why is it important now? Let's focus on the second question first. So why is it important to tackle aging? So the only reason that anyone would even think of asking this question is because they have a misconception in their heads of what aging is in the first place. At the moment, you know, nobody, nobody would ask, you know, why is it important to tackle Alzheimer's? You know, it's kind of a given that Alzheimer's is bad for you and that it's something that medicine, in principle, ought to be able to tackle and therefore we ought to try to tackle it as quickly as possible. The only reason that there's any ambivalence or ambiguity or hesitation about the corresponding question with regard to ageing is because people have a completely poorly defined, woolly definition of ageing in their heads. They think of ageing as some kind of thing that's separate from the so-called diseases of ageing, like Alzheimer's or atherosclerosis. And the diseases are things that medicine can actually, in principle, address, even though medicine hasn't done very well yet. Whereas there's this magic nebulous thing called ageing itself, which is somehow not like diseases at all, and it's kind of natural and inevitable, and, you know, it's like fixing it with medicine would be like creating perpetual motion, which is complete and absolute nonsense. The only thing that really distinguishes the so-called diseases of ageing from ageing itself is semantic. 
It's the fact that we have chosen to give certain aspects of ageing disease-like names. Now, you may ask why we've done that and why the you know resistance to the actual truth of this matter is so pervasive and so entrenched. And I believe it's purely psychological that we kind of don't want to get our hopes up about ageing, about the medical elimination of ageing, and therefore, you know, we have to find some way to put it out of our minds and make our peace with it. And the only way we can do that is by making it a smaller problem, by carving off bits and saying, OK, well, we'll decide that these things are bad because we can pretend that they can be cured, which is, you know, very, very problematic. It's problematic at many, many levels. First of all, even in terms of medicine for these so-called diseases, it makes people try to develop cures for them in analogy with the cures that we might have for infections, which is a completely wrong-headed approach. But anyway, yes, enough of my rant. The things that we're doing, well, as I say, the concept is all about repairing damage. So restoring the structure and composition of the body at the molecular and cellular level to something like how it was at an earlier age, in particular how it was in young adulthood. Now, in order to do that, you don't have to understand all that much about the mechanics, the actual processes of how the damage, how the changes, those structural changes occur in the first place which is actually a huge advantage, being able to sidestep all of our huge ignorance about the complexity of metabolism. But what you do have to do is characterise what the damage is, to actually describe, you know, what are the molecular and cellular differences between an older person and a younger person that contribute to the older person having, a, having less long to live. And it turns out that we seem to be able to do that rather exhaustively. I thought about this back in 2000, and I came up with a kind of taxonomy of damage, a kind of you know, a way to classify all of the various things that we knew that do change with age and that eventually contribute to ill health into a small number of categories. It ended up being just seven categories. And these categories are, you know, they sound very big and perhaps, you know, unproductively big. Things like cell loss, which is just cells dying and not being automatically replaced by cell division. But actually, it turns out that these categories are useful, even though they're rather broad, simply because the approaches that I was able to put forward for repairing them, for restoring the situation to how it was at a younger age, are very generic. So in the case of cell loss, it's just stem cell therapy. After all, that's what stem cell therapy is, right? You just put cells into the body that have been pre-programmed in the lab to know what to do, to, to divide and to differentiate so as to replace the cells that the body is not replacing on its own. And it's the same with all the other things. The thing I was mentioning a moment ago about waste products inside the cell, you know, the generic idea is to give the cell extra enzymes that can break down these waste products. And, you know, there's a particular way of identifying and discovering these enzymes. This was a useful classification, and it continues to be useful. And, of course, at the beginning, the first question was, well, is this classification really exhaustive, or are we still at an early stage in finding out all the various types of damage that accumulate? But I was pretty optimistic, even right from the beginning, that no, we were not at the beginning, that we were pretty much at the end of that, simply because all of these seven categories that I was highlighting had been major topics of study within the world of the biology of ageing for at least nearly 20 years by the time I started thinking about all of this. And now it's twice that long, and still the classification is holding up. I seem to be getting away with it. Which is, I mean, it's only circumstantial evidence, of course, but it's pretty damn strong circumstantial evidence that we really don't have any big, bad black swans coming up, you know, any things that are going to be radically different and are going to need a radically more difficult approach that will kill us on schedule, even if we fix all the seven things that we're currently talking about. 
So obviously the the human body is and biology itself is incredibly complex. So I'm sure that you've received a lot of, you know, criticism, support and all degrees in between. What is an instance of some large pushback that you've received regarding this particular theory? Well, let's talk about the pushback that I received from the gerontology community early on, before they really understood what I was saying. That was quite important because it arose from the real, you know, early origins of gerontology. People a hundred years ago or more had a clear idea that aging was bad for you and it was that they would like to fix it. This whole, you know, misconception of the difference between aging itself and the diseases of aging had not really embedded. So, you know, people were a good deal more sensible about those things. And they tried to attack the various components of aging. But they tried to do it one disease at a time, you know. And it became pretty apparent fairly quickly to at least some people that that just wasn't going to work because there were just too many things that went wrong with people late in life. And furthermore, they went wrong at more or less the same time, which means they would interact with each other and exacerbate each other. And it was just, you know, a non-starter to try to fix all of these things. It was a kind of whack-a-mole thing. So this led to a few people thinking, well, look, all these things happen at more or less the same time. They happen late in life. This is probably a sign that there is some kind of unitary underlying process called aging that's going on throughout life and that gets to a point that causes these things to occur. Therefore, let's be as preventative as possible. Let's try and figure out what aspects of the way the body normally works, of our metabolism, generate this progression towards these pathologies. And then we can just hit the whole thing with one hammer, and that would be wonderful. And that idea became very entrenched. But by the, let's say, the 60s or 70s, it had also become very clear that insofar as there could be described to be a unitary aging process, it was extremely solidly and intricately embedded within metabolism. So that one couldn't just, for example, manipulate one pathway and get aging to go away or even to be greatly delayed. The result of that was that actually a big fight happened about 10 or so years before I came along, where discoveries were made in the short-lived organisms, nematode worms, to the effect that actually this was wrong, that you could make single gene changes that would substantially extend longevity. Now, it turned out that kind of they were both right, that yes, there are these single gene changes that you can make, but they don't really count, because what they're doing is emulating an environmental situation, in this case famine, that is, of course, something that the organism sees regularly in the real world and therefore something that the body has, that the genome has evolved to respond optimally to. And unfortunately, that particular thing, famine, doesn't work very well in long-lived organisms because long famines don't happen. Not long enough, anyway, not often enough. So the result is that this was a kind of false dawn which is a shame because once people did start to accept that these genes existed, everybody switched over terribly fast to the idea that these were the way to actually go, and it became very difficult to get people out of that mode. And the, the, the whole idea of emulating calorie restriction remains unjustifiably prominent and dominant within the field of gerontology uh, even today. But anyway, so what happened was that when I came along and said, well, here's this divide-and-conquer approach, the attitude from a lot of gerontologists was, oh dear, this person's just going back to the original geriatrics idea that is too whack-a-mole and it's never going to work. 
And I was, of course, going back in that direction. But what I was trying to say was that there's this kind of sweet spot between prevention and cure, where if we're tackling this damage before it reaches the point where it's pathogenic, where it's causing things to go wrong, then it's much simpler. It's much, much less whack-a-mole than it would be if you started late in life. I mean, really late in life. And eventually I was able to get that message across. So kind of in summary, you're saying there's no single silver bullet and there's no holy grail. It's rather a series of holy grails in almost an ecosystem of different therapies. That's right. But if you intervene early enough in that process, namely at these various types of mm-hmm. lifelong accumulating damage, then it's still an ecosystem, but it's a manageable ecosystem. It's man- it's, the complexity is not out of sight. So you see us kind of throughout our lives receiving therapies, going to a doctor, maybe a gerontologist specialist that is, you know, when we're 35, we're told by our our standard care physician that, you know, you should go see a a gerontologist who will, you know, give you a variety of therapies specific to you that will... Well, first of all, let's go with the specific to you part. It's probably not going to have to be that way. It's probably not going to have to be all that personalized. What we must remember about personalized medicine is that it's a stopgap. You only have personalized medicine when the generic medicine doesn't really work and you've got to optimize it somehow to be as good as possible for the individual. You know, we don't have personalized polio vaccines because we don't need them. The generic thing just works, right? And it's going to be the same here. The reason it's going to be particularly the same is because everybody gets the same types of damage. So, of course, different people get different pathologies late in life, but that's only because of really rather small differences in the relative rates at which these various types of damage accumulate. The actual nature of the type of damage is the same for everybody. So, basically, if we just don't bother with any personalization and we just give everybody the same therapies, then the worst that's going to happen is that we're giving some people some therapies maybe twice as often as they really need them. And that's probably going to be worth the candle. Yeah, so so don't worry about personalization. As for the schedule, yeah, I mean, that's not clear at this point because, of course, it rather depends on the details of delivery and administration. But, yes, it will be a case of periodic rejuvenation, periodically having therapies administered by injection or whatever that will give you whatever you need to repair the various types of damage that have accumulated since last time. So... If it's, you know, periodic rejuvenation, couldn't it be classified similar to like cosmetic surgery or cosmetic treatments and therefore only be accessible to those who can pay for it? Good question. So, of course, cosmetics are often, especially expensive ones, available only to the wealthy. And indeed, life-saving treatments are generally available only to the wealthy. But there's a reason for that, namely that they don't basically work. You know, cosmetics are called cosmetics because they're cosmetic. They don't really work. And, of course, you know, life-saving treatments for the elderly also don't work yet. They only very modestly, if you're lucky, will postpone the ill health and keep you alive in a poor state of health. And that's not terribly interesting to most people. So kind of there's no electoral pressure to, you know, pay for these things from taxation. Therapies that do work, it won't be like that. Even in a really tax-averse country like the USA, absolutely perfectly clear that there will be... It will be impossible to get elected unless you make sure that these things are available irrespective of ability to pay, to everybody who's old enough to need them. And even if we ignore the electoral side and the humanitarian side, just think about the economics, it's also clear, because these therapies, of course, will keep people in a state of health that's compatible with continuing to contribute wealth to society, which means that economically, just from a completely mercenary perspective, they will pay for themselves in no time at all. 
which, putting it the other way, means that it would be totally suicidal economically for any country not to make these therapies available. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a very thorough answer. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious where therapeutics are now and if they might be available in our lifetime, the next lifetime. Where is that point? And I know it might be kind of a range. And also, is there also a point where therapeutics might not even be effective for people to take? So, of course, you're quite right that any prediction of time frames is rather speculative because the, well, this is pioneering technology. It's true for any pioneering technology. So, yes, I can only give a range, but what I certainly can say is that we're getting closer. When I first started giving estimates of how long this would take, I said that probably it's going to be about 25 years. And when I say probably, I mean I think we've got a 50-50 chance of getting there in 25 years. And I was always very careful to point out that there was at least a 10% chance that it could be 100 years, just if we come across new problems that we don't know about yet, and it turns out to be harder. But I said that doesn't matter, because a 50% chance is quite enough to be worth fighting for. These days, I say 20 years. Now, the problem is that when I started saying 25 years, that was 15 years ago, uh, which means that we've only gone one third as fast as I would have had. But the good news is that the only aspect over which I was over-optimistic was the funding. The fact that I thought we were going to be able to get money in the door a lot more effectively early on than what's actually happened. And if we had done, I'm quite sure we could indeed have gone three times faster. None of the scientific progress that's been made or scientific discoveries that have been made have been bad news. There has been no discovery of some new type of damage that we need to address. There's been no discovery of some new reason why the way we want to address one of the existing seven is not going to work and we have to come up with something new. You know, nothing bad has happened. All the good, all the surprises have been good surprises, like the development of CRISPR or the development of induced pluripotent stem cells or whatever. Mm. So, so that's fantastic. And therefore, yeah, 20 years. But it could be faster. You know, I mean, some things do go faster than the experts expect. And so, you know, the main thing is that we've just got to try as fast as we, as hard as we can, because every day that we bring forward the defeat of ageing is going to be 100,000 lives saved. You know, it doesn't matter which day it is, really. You know, I don't think we'll ever get to a point, no, where something is untreatable. In fact, I think that it's quite likely that the rate at which we will continue to perfect these therapies will be sufficient that we will essentially stay one step ahead of the problem, even for people who are, you know, already in middle age or older when the first therapies come along. Because these therapies, when they rejuvenate you, they will effectively buy you time, not just the time before you get back to being biologically as old as you were when you had the therapies. You will get back there because the damage that the therapies can't yet repair because they're not perfect will eventually accumulate Mm -hmm. but by that time the therapies will have improved so some of that damage will be repairable and so on and i believe that we are pretty much 100 percent certain to maintain that rate of progress to improve the therapies faster than time is passing starting from the first generation therapies that i think we're going to have in 20 years so this is kind of a personal question but if you could live another 100 years what do you think that you'll be doing then? Do you think that you'll still be advancing all of these therapies, you know, nanorobots in the future that are editing our cells in real time? I don't know. There's also a really good podcast with you and Joe Rogan. And you do mention, you know, if I do get a chance to have the next 10,000 years to live, you know, there's a backlog of stuff that I would do. Yeah. So, sure. And yeah. the wisdom that you, you know, will accumulate and the wisdom that we'll all accumulate, you know. Well, so a couple of things to say about all of this. First of all, Yes, there's, I've already got a thousand years of backlog, I'm quite sure of that. But the backlog is recreational backlog, you know, the books I haven't read and the movies I haven't seen and so on. 
In terms of what I would actually, what problem I would want to work on, it would always be a problem that was somehow being neglected by other people. And there may just not be problems that are being neglected by other people. You know, today we have this fatalism about ageing and we also have fatalism about other things like climate change and so on. But I think, you know, actually this is what I said in my TED talk back in 2006, you know, because it was the right kind of audience to say this kind of thing to, that, you know, fixing one of these problems will empower humanity. It will get people to aim high and to realise that all the other problems, you know, even the really hard ones like world peace, you know, <laughs> are actually, you know, within reach. And so, you know, I may be able to just, like, stick to recreation. As to, you know, people often ask, how long do you want to live? You know, and I, I, I've, got, I've become frustrated with that question. You can probably tell that I've become frustrated with quite a lot of questions. But, yeah, that one, you know, I mean, it's such a crazy thing to have an opinion about. My favourite answer these days is, it's like having an opinion about what time you want to go to the toilet next Sunday. You know, I mean, you may have an opinion about what time you expect to go to the toilet because of habit. But that's a different question. You know, what time you want to go? Of course, you're not going to have an opinion on that because you know you're going to have better information on the topic nearer the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's exactly the same. I haven't the faintest idea whether I want to live to 100. You know, I just know that I'd rather like to be able to make the choice when I'm 99 rather than have that choice progressively removed from me by my declining health. If, let's say, you had a second life, a different alternate universe, and you're working on another topic of interest, not aging, what would that be? Well, of course, that is exactly what happened. You know, I was in another universe until my late 20s. I grew up knowing that I wanted to work on problems that would make a difference to the world, and I, in my teens, I pretty much established that that meant going into science. When I was 15, I started programming and found I was good at it, and that led me rapidly to decide that I wanted to work in artificial intelligence research because, for sure, I felt that one of the biggest problems in the world is the problem of work, the fact that, you know, we have to spend so much of our time doing stuff that we would not do unless we were being paid for it. (laughs) And so we should fix that, really, with automation. And so that's what I did quite successfully for several years after my degree, my my undergrad degree with a computer science. But during that time, I met my ex-wife, who is a biologist, and she's a lot older than me. She was already a full professor at UC San Diego when we met. She was on sabbatical in England. Through her, not only did I I, accidentally learn a lot of biology over the dinner table, but also I (laughs) gradually, after a couple of years, began to find out that she wasn't interested in ageing. And in fact, the, the biologists I was meeting through her were also not interested. And this had just never occurred to me, completely never occurred to me, that anyone could possibly not realise that ageing was the world's number one problem, the only reason I hadn't worked on it was because I had never never established that I was a particularly exceptional biologist, the way I felt that I was a pretty good programmer. And so I thought, well, the biologists are going to get on with that. You know, I'll do my thing. But when I found that wasn't happening, I thought, well, fuck, you know, I mean, this is like, I've got, a, I've got no choice. I've got to switch fields. And of course, I was already aware by that point that research is a very transferable skill, that, you know, having established that I was pretty good at working on very hard problems in one field, I knew that I could do it in another field. And furthermore, actually, that I had a chance of making a contribution pretty quickly because, you know, that often happens in science when people switch fields because they're not so encumbered by the conventional wisdom. And sure enough, it was very helpful. You know, there's no question that I was able to have a bunch of ideas over my first few years that I probably wouldn't have had if I had spent my whole career as a biologist. You dedicated to your life and you knew that you wanted to work on, you know, solving the world's largest issues, I guess, 
What kind of is second in line in your mind? <laughs> well, of course, that changes all the time because, you know, progress gets made in these issues. So, you know, I've kind of kept my eye, kept one eye open on artificial intelligence over the years mm-hmm. just because it's what I used to do and I know a lot of people in that field. But I'm beginning to think that it's going to be, you know, that, that, it, that, it, that it doesn't need my help anymore, shall we say. You know, progress is being made at a very much more rapid rate now. People are understanding how to use techniques that had been given up on until only, let's say, less than 10 years ago in, in machine learning. And it's working spectacularly well. So I'm kind of, you know, rele- beginning to relegate that one. And, well, as I say, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm not in any danger of being able to declare victory with regard to ageing anytime soon. So, you know, it kind of would not be a good use of my time to try to make, try to form an opinion about what I might switch to. So... Is there anything that you kind of do in in your personal life? I noticed there are a bunch of books in your bookshelf related to aging and different diets, but are there kind of alternative lifestyle approaches? I know in the Joe Rogan podcast, you you seem to not really give them much credence, but is there anything that you personally do? No, there isn't. Don't pay too much attention to the books. That's just the things I keep getting given at conferences. Um, (laughs) The fact is, I'm not a good example for two reasons. The first reason is I'm... Unusually lucky in terms of my metabolism. I'm definitely biologically a lot younger than my chronological age, and I always have been. Whenever I've been tested, I've been tested you know, very high end tests five times over the past fifteen years. I always come out really, really young. And, you know, I've just, I've just built well, so I can get away with. Pretty, I can eat and drink exactly what I like, and nothing happens. I don't even need to exercise to speak of, which is great. But of course, it does mean that the kind of recommendations that an average person ought to abide by apply less to me, and therefore I shouldn't be. You know, I shouldn't really be. Viewed as an example. The other thing is, <laughs> my, my lifestyle consists of a ridiculous amount of long-distance travel, and the result is I don't get nearly enough sleep, and that's definitely bad for one's ageing. I figure it's a net win, you know, I'm probably hastening the defeat of ageing by a larger margin than the amount I'm shortening my life. <laughs> but, but again, you know, sleep is, sleep is important. So you're a race against time. Something like that. The tests that you mentioned, what are they? Oh, yeah. Quite elaborate. So, okay. I mean, these are things that I've been able Would to I get... Would I be able to, you know... Yeah, should get... we get tested now? <laughs> these are things that I've been able to get for free, but okay. they normally cost, like, $10,000. And they're very, very comprehensive. You spend a day or maybe two, you have... Maybe they test 150 different things in your blood, all manner of physiological and cognitive assessments, and they just try to put it all together. And, of course, they give you this huge report, you know, 50 pages of of data so that you can pick it apart in, in your own way. And of course, a large part of the business model for the clinics that do this is to sell you personalized vitamins and so on. And, uh, and that's fine. But yeah, I always come out really well. But these tests, yeah, they are quite intensive and laborious and that's why they're so expensive. Now, of course, things are improving that way. The um, more affordable kinds of approaches that people are developing these days are more and more effective. And so it will become easier and easier to get a more and more comprehensive idea of how you're doing. But yes, I certainly think that these people in their 30s ought to do their best to get some kind of baseline of where they stand in order to know how careful they have to be about what kind of things. Great. Thank you. We will will definitely do that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. So what is next for Sense and... You know, what are kind of your goals in terms of fundraising and, you know, milestones that you're hoping to achieve? Well, so I don't see our situation changing very much over the next few years in terms of the prioritizations that we have. So this 
situation we're in now where we act as the kind of engine room of the industry, we spin our projects into startup companies, that only, only began maybe three years ago. Before that, we were just you know, purely philanthropic. But now that that transition has occurred, it's you know, got real momentum, you know, we will just carry on, I think, doing that same thing. It will remain the case for sure that we need the non-profit to keep going as well because there are projects that haven't got far enough along that pipeline scientifically to be spinable out. And I think, you know, equally, it's still going to carry on being important for the foreseeable future for me to be doing a very large amount of media and, you know, lectures and so on, just to improve people's understanding of all of this and to make sure that people understand that the defeat of ageing is not only feasible but foreseeable and actually that it's coming really rather fast. So you've always been an evangelist in this field, and I'm curious, did you foresee yourself as being that early on in your life? And what are attributes that have helped you along the way? Mm, good question. So I, you know, I've always seen myself primarily as a scientist, but I've always also always known that I've got what it takes to be an evangelist. In other words, I've got, you know, determination, I've got a thick skin, I've got charisma, you know. Um, <laughs> and as such, when it became apparent that I, you know, I had to do a bit of selling here, you know, I didn't hesitate to accept the invitations to give lectures and, you know, and interviews and so on. And, you know, obviously I've worked my way into it. It's something that I didn't have any formal training in. But, you know, I, I reckon I've been able to get pretty good at it pretty quickly. One thing I would say, though, is that every evangelist has their own style. And different styles work for different audiences. So I've said very clearly for a long, long time that one of the highest priorities in the movement is to bring more people to the fore in that regard, to get more people out there giving diversity of messaging, of style of messaging. You know, I'm very good at what I do, but I only do what I do. And that's beginning to happen now. You know, there are a few people now coming along. I often point to Liz Parrish, who's a particularly strong public speaker, you know, and very different style from me, much more a heartstring chugger, you know, and motivate people that I could motivate. And, you know, huge contribution arising from that. Great. What were, I guess, resources along the way that you picked up to kind of also hone that skill set? I can't really define that. I think really public speaking is all the devils in the detail. You know, you just pick up tricks. I mean, not even particularly necessarily tricks that you could articulate. You know, I'll just occasionally have a new idea of a way to answer a question that's more persuasive than the answer I was using before. You know, it's, it's just accumulating over, over time. Cool. Well, we really appreciate it. My yeah, pleasure. we really appreciate your time. This has been an outstanding conversation for Thank us. You. Thank so. you. Thank you very much. Really we'll, we'll definitely have to have you on again mm -hmm. sure. when things are further along. Totally, yeah. totally. And good luck with the series and, yep. and good luck with everything else that you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, very you very much. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Imagine Human. Please share the episode with any friends or family that may be interested in the topic area. And don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. We are grateful to our listeners who have provided feedback on previous episodes. We plan on delivering more regular content this year, so look out for our episodes in your favorite podcast app. For additional feedback, or if you would like to get connected with any of our guests, please reach out to the Imagine Human team at team at imaginehuman.com. Thank you very much.